0: So who's excited about the new sermon series? Wow. You know, normally we have like plants up here and different things to get you excited, but Drew had a whole other idea of how he wanted you guys to be excited. And normally we have like a hook in sermons to make you like, like grab your attention, but I think that does far better than I could ever do. Thank you, Drew, for spending time on that. But church hurt. This is a very popular uh, term that people are using nowadays, um, and you see it all over the internet, and it's been floating around for about 10 years now. And uh, this term, church hurt, was made popular by us millennials uh, in the early 2000s because there was a new form of technology that came about. Uh, Such a thing as blogging uh, became popular. Uh, Social media, you know, things like that, Uh, different types of groups that started up and they just started booming all over uh, the United States, maybe even all over the world. Uh, This was the very first time in American history that the crazy moments of church felt more like they were in your backyard than not just on things like NBC Dateline or 60 Minutes or the crazy person that would nail their stuff to the church bulletin board on a Sunday morning. But these stories uh, of people getting kind of duped by leaders uh, or elders or preachers or the people sitting next to them in the pews just became more and more... um, you saw them more and more. And it was, how do we deal with this? And this started seeing, seeming like all these stories started to look like the stuff that we saw in the business world, that we saw in the 60s and 70s and 80s, of people just going rogue and completely destroying different businesses. But now it felt that it was completely different because they were a part of the church. But it's not supposed to be that way because the church is supposed to be a place of trust, of, of compassion and love, and just valuing others. And now it is in the forefront of our mind of church hurt. See, Lexington, Kentucky was founded in 1790. And before 1790, there was one church in Lexington, the Presbyterians came in first and planted a church in Lexington. Um, but then a couple years later, there was a big revival uh, in Cane Ridge right outside of Lexington in 1801, where 20 to 30,000 people came to there, and they realized that all of these different denominations have one thing in common, which is Jesus. So they decided that they were going to go just down the road to Lexington and they were going to start planting all sorts of churches. That's where our Christian church movement comes from. That's where the Baptists entered in for the very first time. And, the, and, and, and Christian church, or just church in general, started exploding all over. First, it started coming in our churches and then they started building campuses. Where, that's where Georgetown College, Transylvania, Center College, Asbury University and Seminary and the Lexington Theological Seminary with all of these church backgrounds, uh, just giving ministry training and biblical training to these churches. And I would love to sit up, get up here and just explain and say, look, we have done a great job of treating each other so well over these past 200 years. I would love to say up here, and when we baptize people into faith, and when they're grafted into the vine of Jesus Christ, they live an absolutely perfect life. But unfortunately, that is not the complete truth. That up to this point, the church in Lexington, which once was a booming thing, now only reaches around 20% or less of the people in town. And it continues to drop year after year. And that was one of the reasons we decided to plant A church in Lexington as well. And the main reason, there's two main reasons why these young families, uh, millennial families, have decided that they weren't going to engage in the church once they have kids. The first reason is because their parents, it was optional to them, and whatever is optional for the parents becomes pretty much non-existent to the kids. And the second reason is because these young families are reading their Bible And they're reading how Jesus uh, treated his disciples and encourages his disciples to treat other people. And then we see Paul's teaching as well. And then when we read the Bible and we look at the local church, we see that it doesn't match up very well. That what we're reading, especially in Acts and what we see in, in church nowadays, it doesn't always match up. It's not that people don't believe in God. It doesn't believe that they're not spiritual. It's just that when we look at the local church and we look at... The Bible, it just doesn't match up. And I still remember the very first time I was hurt in church. Now, I didn't grow up in the church, so my, I guess the first time I interacted with somebody that said something to me that I didn't like, I was later in high school, a junior year. I still remember to this day when a youth volunteer looked at Kaylee and I and alluded to the fact that Kaylee and I had been sleeping together, which was not true at all. And I remember for the first time, this is the first time I trusted a place in my life when I was told over and over again that the the faith of people is is beyond other people and, and we should love each other. And it was the very first time somebody in their 40s looked at me and assumed the worst in me. And almost 40 years later, or 40, sorry, almost 14 years later to the month, I still remember that moment to this day. See, those interactions in your life stick with you, and to be honest, I can probably vividly remember that moment than any other moment that I've had either in the church or as a pastor as a whole. I think that moment might stick with me forever. You might have had some of these interactions over your church life. Maybe at some point somebody criticized you or your family Maybe somebody criticized your character. Um, maybe there was a guy on a street corner that, with a bullhorn that was screaming at you because they weren't, you weren't doing what they thought you should be doing. Maybe it was a little bit more of a distant where you followed a church pastor, uh, maybe online or somebody on TV, and they ended up doing something that wasn't great, and they ended up falling from grace. Or maybe it was a misuse of funds. Uh, maybe it was a sexual scandal. Maybe it was just a, hype, uh, um, a hypocritical teacher in your life. You know, the list goes on and on. And I think if I say all those things, many of us can relate to this today. It's a hard pill to swallow that this, this movement that, that's been over 2,000 years that started just down the road, the people in leadership, people in faith, Even all the way to creation, this has been going on for a long time. I mean, we can even go back to the beginning of the Bible where we see stories like Cain and Abel. Uh, Brother on brother, just hate. We see David and Saul with a king and and somebody who was under him. Uh, We have even David's son, King Solomon, and how he treated people. The priest that ran uh, with Elijah. The, pe- the priest that should have been carrying God's Word that, that turned on Elijah. And the list goes on and on. Pretty much every other page that you, that you flip within the Bible, there is some negative interaction where there should be love in the example of God or the example of Jesus in the New Testament, and it's just negative after negative. And even Jesus was no, no stranger to the church hurt, or what they would have called in that time self-righteousness. See, self-righteousness is a term, a biblical term, um, and and you might even hear it in current day culture, but this term describes someone who declares they are righteous by their own actions, that they are the center of moral everything, and whatever they do is right, therefore they are self-righteous. The Bible says that we should be made righteous by, the faith, by putting our faith in Jesus, by putting Him as Lord of our life, and because of that, and practicing His commands, and because of that, we will be made righteous in His eyes. Jesus being the moral center of our life, and us following Him being made righteous through His actions, and not of our own. That is the core center of our Christian beliefs, That it is not because of our own actions, but because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, which makes us in right standing with God. But if you are the center of everything that you do, if you are the center of your universe, then you are the only one that can declare what is right and what is wrong. But before we get too far into this, I want to make this clear. We have this series is going to last four weeks, and we're going to look at four different stories where Jesus interacted with some sort of leader, where the interaction should have went a certain way, but in, in reality, there was some, somebody in that story that had a self-righteous moment. And over these four weeks, you will understand what self-righteousness is. Um, we need to make sure that us as, uh, as individuals understand on how we need to deal with our own self-righteousness what what making sure that we are not the center of our life but also when dealing with and running into somebody who is self-righteous the question that we need to ask is how do we practice the ways of jesus amongst those who are self-righteous or how do we take the examples in the gospel and realize that if we become like this we are not practicing the ways of jesus in ancient times, the Gospels often refer to the self-righteous people as the Jewish leaders. So if you read the, the Gospel message, if you read any four or even into the teachings of Paul, they would often refer to these people as Jewish teachers, the teachers of the law. You won't even see the scribes, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Um, these were many names of people who were constantly at odds with Jesus because of his teaching. Uh, so if you happen to read those and you, and you come across that, that language, you'll probably realize that Jesus is going to show up and there's going to be some awkward interaction there. But Jesus was constantly correcting the teaching of these teachers of the time because they were distant from the purpose of the law. So today we're going to be in a story in John 8 if you want to follow along. Uh, If you if you brought your Bible, you can just open up to John 8. Uh, If you want to follow along on the Bible app, you can go to the Bible app and click events and it will elevate should be the very first one. Or you can scan the QR codes uh, to your right or left and you can click on the Bible app. That is also or if you don't want to do that, uh, the notes, um, if I did a good job, were behind me. If not, um, no promises on that. Uh, but John 8, 2 through 6 says this. This is the start of the story. It says that Don, he, I'm talking about Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law of Moses, commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis to accuse him, talking about Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. See, right before this story, it says Jesus appeared again at dawn. Jesus had just went away to a solitude place uh, to be alone in the practice of silence and solitude with His Father to reconnect and reground. Uh, So He went after that, spending all night just with Him and God, going back into the temple courts to start teaching. See, the temple court is something that we need to understand. It was kind of a hangout for the community, uh, or the Jewish community. It was also a place for non-Jews. It was the only place in the temple that non-Jews could, could go into. And if you read the, the, the Gospels before, you might have ran into stories uh, such as Jesus flipping the tables. Uh, this would have been in the temple courts. They basically made it into a market and Also that you would see is a bunch of different rabbis going before people and teaching. So Jesus going there and teaching was just probably a common thing. There probably would have been multiple other rabbis sitting around or standing on something, just teaching their way that they would have done. But they would have been teaching their Bible at the time. Uh, in, In the Old Testament, this would have been called the Torah which is the first five books of the Bible. Um, that was their Bible of the time. And they would basically just debate issues. They would talk about common issues and relate it to the Bible, kind of, or their Bible, kind of like what we do today. But if you had sinned or if you had fallen short of what the Torah had said or the law had said, you would go into this temple court and you would ask and you would present and you would do the necessary things to be cleansed of your impurities. And that was something that the teachers would have been uh, interacting with. There was a lot going on in this temple courts a lot of different groups, a lot of different pockets, a lot of different teachers. But in this specific part of Jesus's ministry, he would have spent a lot of time teaching because Jesus at the, at the beginning of his ministry was just a teacher. He was a rabbi. He was just like all the other ones. And he was bringing his new way of teaching the law just like the others would have been. If you were here in the last series, you realize that the teaching that the rabbi would have brought would have been called their yoke. So Jesus was presenting his yoke or his teaching to people, trying to get people to follow him. But the rest of the teachers had kind of realized who Jesus was because Jesus up to this point has made a pretty incredible name for himself. Uh, He would have... uh, Uh, done a lot of healings up to this point in John. He would have already fed the 5,000. He would have talked to the Samaritan woman in public, and then the Samaritan woman would have went to her peers and started preaching that the Messiah had come. And this would have probably made a bunch of people very frustrated with him. This would have happened multiple times in interaction with him, referencing that people would have been frustrated with him. And this would have made people extremely mad because whenever Jesus talked about, talked about His teaching, instead of referring to the people in the past of te- people who would have done these teachings, kind of like we do in our sermons where we, we reference what I will do later in my sermon, reference a teacher from the past, say this was their inter- interpretation, the rabbis would have done that as well. But if you read Jesus' teachings, He never did that. He never said, Rabbi so-and-so said this. He just said, I have come and I say this. He said, truly, I tell you. And He said this over and over again. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, just one example, He said, I, you have heard that it says, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And then Jesus' response is, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone steps on you, or anyone slaps you with, on your right cheek, turn to them the other cheek. And Jesus would have done this over and over and over again. And the Pharisees would have been, started to catch on to this and realize that this Jesus was not like everybody else. So we have this interaction where it says the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. What the author of this book does not explain and I think that we need to understand in the background of this is how, was, how did this woman get here? How did this woman get caught in the act of adultery? I, well, I'll ask you that question. How would you catch somebody in the act of adultery? Would you like hide under their bed and just wait and just hope that you know? Or would you like hide in their closet and just like wait for noises and then pop out? Is that something that you would do? Would you peek through their window or just like walk by their house over and over again every time somebody's, somebody would walk into their, to their house just hoping that you would see somebody and then jump out and say, well, hey, gotcha. Is that what you would do? But here's the thing that, that is just assumed in this scripture that, that the writer John does not talk about. No matter how you put it, If you catch somebody in the act of adultery, 90% 90 of the the time, you just sound like a creep. And if you drag a woman across the town and you throw them in the center of the church, whether it's in America or even back then, you look and sound like a creep. And I'm just going to let you guys know, a peeping Tom is always a creep no matter what he sees every single time. No matter... No matter, what angle, no matter what angle you look at it, the situation, no matter the adultery, these people, and they look and sound like creeps to Jesus. And here's what the self-righteous does. No matter how weird it sounds that they caught a woman in the act of adultery and drug her across town and then placed her in the center of the township, no matter how weird that sounds, the self-righteous will seek out the wrong to elevate themselves. It's not that they stumbled upon this person caught in adultery. And they just needed to bring it up because adultery is a sin. No, no, no. It was in their deepest desires to point out somebody else's wrong and to bring it up so that they could place somebody's wrong next to them so that they look amazing because they follow the law. And this other person looks so gross such so much like a sinner, that they look like nothing. That is what society is all about even today. And we even do this in our friend groups. We do it at our workplaces. And sometimes we call it just sarcasm, but it always is at the expense of somebody else. And even if you look at our news, and you see the political people, and they just... They're just pointing out the facts of other people, how they're getting it wrong, but they never actually bring up real solutions to help out because they are just in the business of being in the moral high ground and not actually following any solutions. The more people you point out, the higher you become, is what society says. What better way to do than to do that at the expense of some lady? So they look at Jesus and they ask this question, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the, and in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? As the teachers ask Jesus. And then it goes on, John gives a little, a little information It says they were using this question to trap Jesus. But the question that he doesn't answer is, what was that trap? Well, the trap would have been to present Jesus with a problem in hopes that he didn't know the solution to that problem. So if he was to go along with whatever thing they wanted to do and it was wrong, he would be found out as a fraud because he, he, the rabbi, did not know the Jewish law. And they would bring him in front of whoever the leaders were, the town leaders, and they would pretty much disbar him from being a Jewish rabbi for all of eternity. That's what they were hoping they could do with throwing this woman and saying, look, the law says we need to stone her. But what they didn't realize is Jesus understands two things. Jesus actually does know the law. And what the law says is that if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, then the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress, must be put to death. So we see here that these people only brought the woman who was caught in adultery. And either the man had the quickest feet of all time and got the heck out of town, or they had a different mindset of what they were trying to accomplish when bringing this woman in front of Jesus. And if they did want to kill this woman, What they would have done in this moment is the Jewish leaders who brought this woman could not actually kill this woman. That there's actually a hierarchy to this. That if they found somebody that was caught in adultery, you couldn't just grab them, put it in front of people, and just have everybody kill them. No, there is a process to it, as there should be. It shouldn't just be acting like the wild, wild West of ancient times. But there was a process of if somebody was caught in adultery, it would go in front of the Jewish leaders. And then because they were in Rome, they had to go to the Roman courts. And the Roman courts had to agree with it as well. And Jesus knew every single part of this. But what the Jewish leaders wanted is they wanted just the win. Either way, they just wanted to win. So they created two different options for them to win. One win was, to, well, they got rid of an adulteress. They, they killed this woman. They convinced a bunch of people to stone this person. And then the second win, if it would have happened, was they would have got rid of Jesus. But either way, the, the self-righteous person always wants to look victorious. If you spend any time reading the Gospels, you will notice that Jesus, and I love this about Jesus, Jesus always brings something new in his teaching in every scenario. If you continue on in in verse 7, it says this, when they kept questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who, that heard began to go away one at a time. The oldest ones first until it was only Jesus was left. With the woman standing there also. Jesus straightened up and asked her woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. There are many different ideas of why Jesus knelt down before these people and started writing on the ground. One idea is is it comes from straight out of Jeremiah 17. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put. You shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord. That is this one idea that, that Jesus was literally writing the names of all the people in front of him, saying that they have forsaken your teachings, Lord, and they're going to walk away. But others, other teachers, maybe that it was that, but the other teachers believe that because of the sinful nation, the sinful nature. And the self-righteousness of these teachers, Jesus refused to do anything that they said. When they brought the woman in front of, in front of them and, and they asked the question, "What do you say?" Jesus didn't reply with any words, but he knelt down and started to write it on the ground. And then whenever they, whenever they said, "Do you ask to condemn this woman?" Jesus offers a completely different solution than the one that they offered. Jesus' response has always been the same, and it still is to this day. It is not one of condemning, but of one of saving and pushing towards purity and holiness and to live a righteous life. When Jesus, it says Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She she replied with no, sir. And he responded with, neither do I condemn you. And this is what he brings in his teaching that is new. He said, go now, leave your life of sin. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers in Mere Christianity, describes the self-righteous bringing just up two pairs of errors, And this is what he says, he said, he, which he's talking about Satan here, always sends errors into the world in pairs. Pairs of the opposites. And he always encourages us to spend a lot of time thinking, which is the worst? You see why, of course. He relies on our extra dislike of one error to draw us gradually to the opposite one. But do not let us be fooled. We have to keep our eyes on the goal and go straight towards Between both heirs, we have no other concern than that with each of them. The self-righteous person will always come into your life, or come around, and they will give two options which are on the opposite sides of the spectrum, and they will convince you that there are only two options in this moment." But we see in Jesus that there is, always, there is always a third option, which is the teaching of Jesus. See, in this story, they said, the law of Moses says this. And unfortunately, whenever a teacher or either somebody in authority or an elder or a pastor or anybody in authority says this, we often believe it. Because in the church, there's a lot of trust. The self-righteous person will come into your life and will only present these two options. But Jesus presents the third option, which is saving, which is new life. And Jesus is the only one in the entire world that brings this third option to you. See, the main point for the day is Jesus seeks you out to save you and bring you new life and not to condemn you. The way to fight against self-righteous is through the practice of submission. And the practice of submission specifically under the authority and to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Because we are not self-seeking. But we are seeking the Father in His, His direction, His example, and His example of loving others and not ourself. And if we are under the authority of Jesus, we will bring what Jesus brings to this earth and not what we can just create. In the love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13, it says, Love is not self-seeking. And Paul, he also says in, about self-righteousness in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can perform all mysteries and all knowledge, and I, if I have the faith that can move mountains, but I do not love, I have nothing." And if I give all I possess to the poor and I give my body to hardships that I might boast but do not love, I gain nothing. And even C.S. Lewis, here's another C.S. Lewis quote for you, talking about the self-righteous people. He said this, a cold self-righteous prig who goes regular to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. What C.S. Lewis understands and what Jesus understood is that it is possible to follow the commandments. It is possible to go to church every Sunday. It is possible to be able to quote the Bible front and back. But if you do not have love like it says in 1 Corinthians 13, then you have nothing. It doesn't matter how much you do in your life. If your soul's desire is to seek out the downfall of others, then you have nothing. I've watched so many church people fade over times because of pointing of the finger, because of gossiping, their desire to point out other people's flaws. They make up scenarios just to see if you bite so that you could fall in place. I've seen where they've used relationships I've seen where they've just, they've just dumped off other people in relationships because they found something that is better. See, nothing about this, about self-righteousness, builds a community. Nothing about it. It only tears down individual people. It creates cliques within the community. And it's just a bunch of people trying their best to claw and to fight to get on top. In this case... A woman caught in sin was used to empower the religious leaders to make sure they were on top, and they used it at the expense of this woman. See, many of us have been hurt by somebody in the church. I know because I've heard some of your stories. I've talked to you about your church background. If you've just been in the church, it is inevitable that it will happen. It could be as little as an offhand comment or just be the biggest scandal in the world and there's a documentary made about this person. But either way, the only thing that we can control is ourselves. And we can control by by following the example of Jesus and not becoming what we have seen in the past, but going about it with that third option that Jesus brings. Because Jesus seeks you out Therefore, we should seek other people out, to breathe them to a Savior to save them, and to offer them and explain to them new life, and not to condemn them. I'm going to end with this. John 3.17 after John 3.16 says this, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. So God, as we go through your teaching and we're talking about church hurt and we're talking about self-righteousness, I pray that we just think always of that third option of what would Jesus do because we know that your son did not come into this world to condemn this world, but he came to save it and therefore we should do that as well. God, there's, there's only going to be more church hurt. There's only going to be more scandals as the world goes on. The world is only going to become more difficult and the church is not the example. But I pray that our church and our people can set an example of Jesus and Him alone. God, I pray that we can seek people out to save them through Your Son and to offer them a new life and make them realize we do not come as the church to condemn people, but we come to save them and bring them hope and joy. God, Your Son, Jesus' testimony and his, and his options are amazing because they bring us life. God, be with us. And I thank this all in Your Son's name. Amen.